Welcome back to the Non-Standard 14er Podcast, the podcast that tells you everything the root description leaves out about hiking Colorado's 14ers. I'm sitting around my kitchen table, joined by the Jacks again. Hello. What's up? And we're proud to welcome a new a guest to the 14er Podcast, the Mongoose. Hello. So to get our uh, audience to know you, Mongoose, I'm going to ask you a starter question here to get the conversation started. Okay. Of your credentials, what are you most proud of here? Are you most proud of finishing the 14ers, summoning Rainier, winning the Colorado 14ers uh, Peak Restoration Award, or winning the 2015 uh, Colorado 14ers Dance-Off Award? (laughs) That's quite the credentials. I think I'm just happy to still be sitting here, alive. (laughs) (laughs) Probably finishing the 14ers. I think that took the most effort and time. How long did it take you? Five years. And you started in? Uh, I started really about 2008 and finished in 2013. So we're talking about Gray's Peak this time. We're also going to talk about what, uh, since Gray's Peak is one of those peaks that people do as their first 14er, we want to talk about a little bit of etiquette, um, what to bring, uh, what to pack, what kind of food, kind of general uh, introduction of what you tell people that have never done a 14er. So uh, to get the conversation started, I was thinking of, what would you tell yourself five years ago, Mongoose, or when you're starting to do the 14ers, Jace? What, what do you know now that you'd wish someone would have told you back when you were first doing your first 14er? I, I think the main thing, I, I didn't appreciate starting early enough. Mm-hmm. I was told start early, yeah. but I think, you know, I think as uh, people gain more experience, they start to kind of bend rules a little bit. But that's the one rule. I think the more experienced people get, they actually start earlier and earlier and earlier. I think you grow to appreciate the alpine starts too. Like it's kind of fun and a, and a sick way to get up before the sun's up. It's like part of the experience, I think, for me. So what's early? Like if you're doing grays tomorrow, what time would you get up? Yeah, if we're talking in the summer, usually, well, it depends on your weather forecast. But the old rule of thumb was be off the summit by noon. But I, I think you're better off being off the summit by probably 10 a.m. That changes depending on whether you're spring, summer, or fall conditions? Um. Well, that rule is mainly set up to avoid lightning and thunderstorms in the afternoon. So, you know, if you have a, usually the forecast in the summer will be 30% chance of rain after noon or 50% chance of rain after 1 p.m. So kind of wherever your window is, if you got a clear day all day, you know, you can, you can bend that a little bit. In the spring, it's more about how soft the snow is going to get when you can get out of there. I think for me, I like to shoot for a 9 a.m. summit, depending on the forecast, but that's usually my rule of thumb. So like Mongoose mentioned, be off the summit by 10, as you can enjoy an hour on the summit if the weather's nice. Um, And then I use the just general rule of thumb, 1,000 feet an hour for calculating time. So if it's 4,000 feet, you know, I think we could start at 5 o'clock and conservative would be on the summit by 9 and by 10. So that's kind of rule of thumb, really rough how I plan my alpine starts. Um, but like, you know, very low risk of lightning last Sunday when we were up on Tories and I think we were on the trail by 5.30 or 6 at a pretty leisurely pace and didn't have to worry about weather. It was more about, like Mongoose mentioned, the snow conditions. So depends on time of year. Alpine start. What else would you, what about you, Taylor? What would you like to have known? I think I would have, I would have given myself advice on what to bring in terms of food. I don't think I ever really did a good job of fueling the first couple 14ers I was on, and I didn't realize how important that was until Jace or Jack and I started climbing together, and we really had some good snacks and some good energy. Sour Patch Kids, what's up? 
because you just, you don't want to be summiting and being miserable and not having any of the energy. So I think the first couple I did, I, I was, yeah, not eating well. There's an interesting thread on this too, that you, you may have seen too, like what people bring as their food and, you know, cliff bars are good when you're sitting around the living room, but you want something that's like palatable and that you're going to look forward to. So I've heard people bring cold chipotle burritos, fried chicken, mm. like stuff that you're actually going to look forward to eating on the summit. So you do, and therefore don't bonk on the way down. Um, I know we live on four points bars when we climb, um, shout out to Patrick, but sour patch kids are a little treat for sugar mm-hmm. and honestly, little beef jerky sticks or some beef jerky mm-hmm. is something I always look forward to on the summit. But back when I was first starting to climb and it was just a, you know, I just thought of it as a hike. I wasn't really fueled well. And I think I bonked on a couple mm-hmm. of them and it just made it not a fun experience. What about you short rope? I did my first couple in uh, cotton socks. So it's oh. just, it's terrible, it's terrible. Wow, cotton kills. Yeah, I did uh, quandary of my third 14er in, on uh, Halloween. We we got post hold a little bit on, on, in the tree line, and my my feet got wet and bad. Did you get blisters? No, I got super cold. Oh. The one where you and Sean. Buddy, switched. I was with. Yeah, he switched. He switched a sock with me, and and his and his uh, shoe, and we punky brewstered it all the way to the summit. <laughs> that was just stupid. Like not having the right equipment, cotton cotton kills, right? But if someone who doesn't know, maybe it's, you know, one of their first 14ers, it, they may think a cotton sock with some poly blend is totally fine. So that's just good advice. Don't wear cotton socks. Same with the underwear. Cotton underwear, miserable. Yeah. For guys, at least. I don't know. I was going to say for ladies, you know. <laughs> 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 that's, that's what it is. We're going to talk about laundry about right? next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's something lacy. No. <laughs> Um, one other thing I'd throw in is I think taking a break every hour, I think people tend to hike until they need a break and that they get a couple hours in and they kind of bonk and it's like good to take a rest break, make sure you're drinking water, eat something along the way, do all that before you need to. That's a, that's yeah, great advice. Great. Yeah. I'd say my advice to myself when I started would be to not overpack. And I know that's kind of counterintuitive to what we're about to talk about. So I'm not saying skimp on any of the 10 essentials. I still always have those with me, um, no matter what. I don't, you know, ever uh, negotiate on those. But I think a lot of times I would bring an extra shirt and an extra pair of socks and an extra this and an extra that and more food than I need. And I still have a guilty pleasure of bringing a, a full-size 32-ounce Gatorade and pounding it on the summit. That's worth the wait to me. But... I've been known to overpack, and especially on overnight trips, bring in, uh, you know, a pillow and some of the stuff you just really don't need, and it really adds up. Um, so to, to bring the 10 essentials, but to not overpack and really focus on being a little more diligent with what you bring and thoughtful it has uh, has helped. I'd say don't be that guy, but definitely hike with that guy. Yeah, that's just, there you go. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. Shout, yeah. Out, <laughs> shout out to Rye Guy. <laughs> The person hikes in the liter of right. wine and yeah. waffle maker. You and don't need to bring anything. That's <laughs> first aid kit. Yeah. So what are the 10 essentials? Hey, Mongoose, you're that? the one that does uh, these public presentations to people. How, how did you get started with that? And tell us about how you're even doing that and why. And Yeah, so about three years ago, um, I put together a presentation. It, it just seemed like more and more people were venturing out into the 14ers and climbing and seems like more and more people don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so I, I put together uh, just a presentation and gave it at a couple of the mountaineering shops, Bankade and Golden, Neptune up in Boulder. 
um, went down the Springs and just kind of tried to tell everybody just basic stuff, you know, how to plan a hike using information available, primarily 14ers.com, what to bring, what'll get you in the trouble. And you bill yourself as just someone who's finished the 14ers and has advice to give or? Sure. I'll talk to anybody who will listen. Okay. But yeah, you know, and people are really receptive. I, I think the first time I threw out the idea, I knew the manager at Bank 8 and said, can I give this a try? And I said, I don't know if anybody's going to show up, but we'll give it a shot. And we had like 50 people show up for that first talk. Um, huh. And so we've had just a lot of people are really interested in getting out. Um, so I tried to do it this time of year, beginning of June, end of May, kind of before summer season starts. But I think a lot of people are just kind of interested, but they don't really know where to start. So it's been it's been really good. Is that the audience though? Most people in, is are people who have never done a 14er. Or? I'd say probably half of the people have never done a 14er. Probably the other 40% have done you know less than a dozen. Where do these people hear about the presentation? Because presumably these people aren't already hanging out at the mountaineering shops. Yeah, it, it's usually on I guess through Facebook. Okay. And through advertisements. Okay. And so you have a 45 minute like go to like everything essentials crash course on 14ers. Yep. And so what is the, what's the first thing you tell people? What's the first thing I should know about hiking a 14er? I'm going to run up grays tomorrow. I, I start with the basics, like what is a 14er um, <laughs> and what is a 13er and where they're at and how to go on 14ers.com and look at, you know, plan your route, uh, how to look at the class rankings of the, of the trail and elevation gain and mileage and kind of understand all that. Um, look at the difficulty of the hike in the rock. And then kind of plan your time and your weather window to try to put all that together, um, you know, and help people out and what they need to pack and what they need to bring. You know, you don't you don't need to buy a bunch of expensive gear to get out and do it for your first time. What gear do you need? What gear do you need? Not, not cotton socks. <laughs> well, <laughs> layers. I mean, tennis shoes are okay. You know, you don't have to buy an expensive pair of hiking shoes for your first time out. I tell people you want to avoid cotton, you want to dress in layers, you want, you know, base layers, something that is kind of like a poly pro. Um, and then you want something for warmth, so like a jacket to put on. And then you want something for like rain or, you know, to keep you dry, so like a rain jacket. And I try to say, like, make sure you have enough clothes so if you had to spend the night out there, you'd survive. You don't have to be comfortable, but that you can make it through the night. If everything goes wrong, shorts. So what's are, that mean? Taking them like an emergency blanket or or what? Yeah, bivy? either yeah, an emergency like a space blanket or a little bivy. They weigh nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. Or like they aluminum just foil sit type. Sit in like, the bottom of your pack until you need them. Hopefully. Yeah, I mean the idea is if you put on all your clothes, you know, and like a ski cap and gloves, just the kind of thing where if something happened, you could put on all your layers, hop in your bivy, and hang out as long as you needed to until help came. And what percentage of people you think do their first 14er have that ability? Are, are that well prepared? Yeah. Probably not a whole lot. <laughs> probably not many. What are your thoughts on the, just to play devil's advocate, probably the people that would say, oh, I'm only going up grays. It's a couple miles. I'm from Kansas. I'm going up with a bunch of buddies anyway. The trail's populated. Why do I need to bring the 10 essentials? So, I mean, yeah, most of the time you can probably get away with that. And especially on the really popular front range peaks. It is true. And, and, you know, I used to say to people, like, you should always have a partner. It's a bad idea to go solo. But the reality is if you go to Beerstack, Quandary, Sherman on a 
Saturday, there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of people. Half of Denver's up there. Up there. So you're not, you're not really alone. Right. But I, I think, I think what people don't realize is that the, the range and difficulty from your easiest peaks to your artist peaks is huge. And so on some of the easiest peaks, you can kind of get away with not being as prepared. But if you start moving into more of the class two peaks, you can get yourself into trouble real, really quick, you know, especially if you get off route. And class two jumps from what? Just regular two feet to what? What's the difference between class one and class two? Class one is usually a man-made trail, something that's been built by Colorado 14 Initiative or some other group. Class two is just um, a more uneven surface, kind of rocky. You Wait, know. Do you need to use your hands at all on class two? No. Okay. And then class two plus is when you start getting into really loose gullies where you got a lot of dirt and rock and things move where you're still not doing anything technical, but rocks are flying and a lot sloppier. And then we so get what's into class like like Columbia, a dirty scree field on Columbia. What's what's a good class yeah. two example? Uh, class, class two, two plus sniffles would be a. But that 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 kind of rock that, yeah. that kind of dirty gully on the yeah. first gully I mean, it's on basically sniffles. Basically, just loose dirt with rocks and. Trying to think of some other ones. Yeah, so Snuffles is a good Cross, one. maybe? Would that be a... Holy Cross could have some. Um, Kit Carson, Challenger. What about the gully up uh, Pyramid before you get to the 13,000 foot? Yeah. Yeah, before two you plus. get to the... Yeah. Or, or Missouri, on that backside of the ridge where you've got that one funky off-kilter oh, yeah, steep maneuver. Yeah, that's a weird yeah. So, and there's a big range between Class 2 and Class 2 Plus. I mean, it can be something as easy as Shearstad or something... You know, a lot of people will, another example is Mount Lindsay has a really loose class two plus gully and then right next to it is a class three, you know, kind of rock. And so most people will will take the class three climb up the rock to avoid the class two gully. We did kind of a hybrid. Yeah, we did, but it was wet. Yeah. Last summer. I've heard this, I've heard it described sort of in layman's terms. I know there's some wiggle room on this definition. It's kind of loose, but like. The class correlates with your points of contact on the mountain. So like class two, you're just walking. Class three, you may have to use a hand. Class four, you're four points of contact. And class five, you're on a rope, ideally. Five huh. points. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. For the most part? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good kind of rule of thumb. Um, class three is considered technically climbing. Class four, I always say, is, is when the pucker factor goes to 10, you're, you're either in class four or getting into class five. I, I think there's a, a big difference too that uh, even though it may not be technically difficult or challenging, uh, 14ers are still 14ers. They're still really That's high altitude. Uh, that that is yeah, it's no it's no joke. Uh, it's something that I think a lot of people think of it as just a regular day hike, but a 14er is still a pretty intense process, and it's still a really big climb, and it's something that. If you're going to do that, just be prepared that it, it is difficult. Even if it's the easiest 14er out there, they're still difficult. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, like a seven-mile hike seems like a seven-mile hike and until it's at starting 11,000 feet to 14,000 right. feet. Right. Well, here's the thing, too, is like you can psych yourself out a lot by – or take things easily by reading these blogs. And a lot of people from out of town spend times on, time on 14ers.com and things like that. And there's a lot of people of varying skill sets that might say, oh, Class one's a walk up, but for somebody else it might not be. So keep in mind right. everything's relative. Like as you're gathering beta online, like your easy might not be someone's difficult and vice versa. Exactly. Exactly. Might be someone's difficult. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Right, yeah, right. Exactly. 
I've heard someone say that you also should never downplay a 14er at all, like or downplay someone's accomplishments. Because what might be a warm up for you running up Elbert so you can get ready to do the Chicago Basin in a day might be someone's whole summer training to do Elbert. Yeah. And so you never sure. you should never badmouth or downplay a successful summit. But that person who's training all summer to do Elbert might read online that somebody runs up it once a day that lives in Leadville or something and says it's an easy walk up and not prepare properly because they've read that it's easy. I think that's to your point. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. So what were those 10 essentials? Did you... uh, it looks like here it's a first aid kit with some basic items uh, updated every six months to make sure it's not expired. Map compass, a pocket knife, emergency whistle, matches or fire starter, uh, an emergency bivy or blanket, flashlight or headlamp, uh, clothing for warmth or rain protection, to your point. Extra food, extra water, and then sun protection. Do you want to talk about a couple of these? Yeah, yeah. All right, complete first aid kit. What does that look like? Um, so for me, it's band-aids, duct tape. Duct tape, okay. Um, Moleskin or just duct tape, tape covers for... Um, Moleskin works. I usually just can put duct tape over a blister. Right, but... so it doubles... So there's this stuff you can find on Amazon. Patrick showed it to me. It's called Luco Tape, L-E-U-K-O Tape. Fantastic for blisters. Way okay. better than Moleskin. It doesn't stick up like Moleskin does, and it adheres better than duct tape. I tape my heels every single hike I go out on. It's incredible. And Patrick tapes the crap out of his feet every time. Before you get a blister. Me too. Yeah. Hmm. I tape my it's feet incredible. before I do anything. It doesn't roll up like duct tape. Luco tape, it's, you, you can tape an ankle with it. I've subbed out my regular cotton athletic tape for Luco tape in my med kit. Okay. And it's amazing. Cool. I think it's good to have Benadryl mm -hmm. in case someone gets stung by a bee or has a reaction. Uh, okay. Ibuprofen or leave. Imodium in case you're having a bad day. Yeah, yeah. Which seems to happen more at elevation. Yeah, I mean, your stomach's Can you explain a little that more to me? sensitive. Why? Um, it's kind of part of beginning of, like, the effects of altitude and altitude sickness is your stomach's just more sensitive. Um, for me, personally, I, I find that it's... I kind of lose my appetite when I get higher, so i got to kind of force myself to eat more. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes uh, if you're camping or, you know, you're filling up water in a stream or something, it doesn't always get purified correctly, so... Modium can be a, a day saver. Map and compass. I don't know how many people bring a physical compass anymore, but I think one of the things is we get really reliant on our phones because our phones can do everything. But if you drop your phone <laughs> and it smashes, like you can lose your route description, you can lose your navigation, you can lose all kinds. It's always a hard, a hard copy. Yeah, that's something that we do. Is you always print off a hard copy with even the photos if we can and then i carry physical compass the other thing i do um, because i rely on my phone so heavily and this is actually coming to play like on maroon my phone's dead by the time we get to the top because i'm taking pictures um, i carry a mophie an external battery mm -hmm. weighs a couple ounces and you charge it at the top on the way down you've got your gaia gps or whatever it's it's really coming handy yeah i think that's great i um my watch can give me a gps coordinate and i always print out just a, a map either a Cal Topo or the one on the route description from 14ers.com. So use that as a backup. Do you leave a map in your car? Do, are you in the habit of running your route on the on a route description and putting it on your dashboard? I usually sure. leave it with somebody back home. Okay, so you think people, someone knows your route. Yeah, yeah, I got So I have a friend or a check-in and says, if I'm not home by this time, or if you don't hear from me, call the sheriff. And 
<laughs> if you don't um, think Chaffee you need County. to do that, watch 127 hours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let someone know where you're going, even if it seems like an easy, easy which, one. Which leads into our next point, pocket knife. Too soon? And a tourniquet. Uh, emergency <laughs> whistle, and then matches and fire starter. I think, you know, matches and fire starter is something that's very light, but I think a lot of people kind of skip on it because... You're above tree line a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a good thing to have. I, I carry a butane lighter because I've actually tried to light a fire. I don't know if anyone else has in the wind with matches or a regular lighter, and you can't, but a butane will be wind resistant. So for 6 bucks at a gas station, it's a pretty worthy investment. And you can just leave it in your pack and forget about it and never look at it again yeah. until you need it. I, I think I carry I always carry lint, matches, and a lighter. Cotton balls soaked in petroleum jelly. Your socks have been light. Emergency bivy, blanket, shelter. We kind of talked about that. Flashlight or headlamp. I have a headlamp in my bag at all times. Yeah. I always say bring one more headlamp than you need. So if I'm going to use one in the dark, I'll bring two headlamps. They don't weigh anything. And they can be really great if you have a rescue and it gets dark. A great way to signal for help. And show where you are. So I'll piggyback off that. I got a gift for you. Here are little keychain LED lights. Ooh. I saw this at Alpine, alpinesavvy.com a month ago. I bought 10 of these for 15 bucks on Amazon. They're keychain LED, but they're super bright. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And so hide one underneath your helmet. Hide one on your oh, climbing bag, you. on your chalk bag, on your pack, on your keychain. Okay. Super Thank good. Thank you very much. For like a dollar. These things are like a dollar. I said about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put them on my, on my pack and on my climbing helmet. Oh, Jesus. Oh, at Chaser Jack. Broke. Broke. Well, one out of ten doesn't work. I have a big dumb meathead. Put, put it towards you. Short rope. To, to this point, too, I actually have Try my keychain uh, that is on my backpack, is just a tiny little yeah, compass. And I know it's not super, super accurate, but it's this little baby compass I don't even have to think about, and it's my zipper strap on my backpack. So if I ever got into it, I have a zipper strap with a little tiny compass on it. So if you ever see one, just pick them up. You can add it to any pack, and it's something you don't even have to think about. So the article I read on Alpine Savvy was take take those little LED uh, keychain lights, put a little bright colored... Uh, shoestring on them and timed it just timed everywhere timed your zipper timed your coat timed your helmet just so you have an extra put them in your first aid kit just to have an extra light somewhere super smart super smart Thank and they're you. like two dollars they're less than two bucks love it <laughs> great do we need to learn morse code <laughs> send beer <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so what was your first 14er taylor mine was beer stat jace same as mine. I think I was seven. Beer stuff. I think I was seven years old, too. No. Seven years old? Yeah. yeah. I was huh. just a kid. Did you have a bivy sack and a I first aid kit? <laughs> I, had, I, had, I had a dad. Did you have a Modi, I was with my dad, who was uh, training for the Eco Challenge at the time. It's a race that's now been discontinued, but it's a like, 400-mile adventure race. So he was in peak shape, and needless to say, he had all the 10 essentials. But I'm pretty sure dad and I just hiked up with a PB&J. And did not have all the ten essentials, I'm sure. <laughs> but you made it. Nonetheless. But I made it nonetheless. Yeah. So beer stat was my first. 
What about you? Uh, beer stat was actually my first. Really? But I was 27. Okay. okay. <laughs> I didn't have dad. Yeah, I think beer stat's a great first hike. Um, usually recommend beer stat, grazer tories, quandary, Sherman. They're all good places to start. Yeah. Short rope, what was yours? Mine was Grace. Okay. I did Grace standard north north uh, slopes route on Grace for the first time. How old were you? I was, let's see, 2010. Oh, boy. Math. Uh, okay, math. <laughs> don't, don't date him on a podcast. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 2010. Last right. week. It was 2010. I was here for about two weeks in Colorado. Uh, only knew about Pikes Peak. And so I drove down, drove up Pikes Peak, rode the Cog Railroad, and talked to the ranger there. And they said, hey, people hike this thing and, like, camp. And, like, I was like, people really hike this thing? And then so I learned about 14ers, <laughs> decided to try to do grays, got a late start, wore cotton socks. Like, where's the road? Yeah. <laughs> got out of the car. And there's so many people on Saturday. Like, you're parking like a half a mile below yeah. the trailhead. But where that where the bridge crosses there at Stevens Gulch. As soon as I got out of the car, I felt like my lungs were like <laughs> sand. Yeah. I'd never been in elevation either. 10,000 oh, feet. Sure. Is... Where were you coming from? I lived in Pennsylvania. Okay. I was in Richmond for a couple of years before that. So I was pretty much sea level. And then so two weeks in Colorado. And then let's go run up. Try wow. to do grays. Yeah, that's. I grew up at elevation, and I still struggled up beer stat. Did you get sick at all? Go I got a headache. Chill. Yeah. Yep. Which is like a lot with AMS or what? With Ames Keep or mountain sickness? Yeah. yeah. A little bit nauseous, headache, dehydrated. How much water did you bring? I brought a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, final water. I, th- I just think I was not used to elevation. I didn't eat enough. I'm a first fourteener. Yep. But I did graze and I looked over at Tories and I thought, Pfft. <laughs> <laughs> uh-uh. nope. And it's only that's half a mile, less than half a mile, 600 feet drop and regain, but didn't do it. And the, the thing about the headache is I, I think we all experience headaches from time to time at altitude. But in general, the, if you keep going up, it's going to get worse. And if you start going down, it's going to get better. You know, sometimes you got to make a judgment if you're 500 feet below the summit and you got a mild headache, you know, you're fine just to run up, tag the summit and go down. But if you're just starting out and you're only at 11,000 feet and you got a bad headache or anything else, it's probably better to turn around because it's going to just get worse. And if anyone in your party is, you know, getting nauseous or vomiting or anything, you, you want to go down immediately sure. and get them lower. Do you tell people to take their rings off if they're not used to elevation? For sausage fingers at all? I'm not married, so. <laughs> I do. I, I do too. Sometimes we hike down with our hands over our heads because they get so damn yeah. swollen. The sausage yeah. fingers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I take off my wedding band. I wear. Like, I would too if I was married to this guy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Oh, at Jason Jack. I love him. <laughs> Rested. No, I wear I wear one of those rubber. It's Malibu for that one. Wow. <laughs> I wear one of those rubber Kalo bands because your rings will, your fingers will hurt, your fingers will swell. So don't hike with metal jewelry. You'll just want to rip it off halfway up. So take us up Gray's Peak. Standard on Gray's Peak. Normally one of the first pe- peaks people do. Right off I-70. Real easy to get to. Off Bakersfield exit. Three miles off the Bakersfield exit. 3,000 feet elevation gain like right on the dot. Probably actually 10, 10 feet less, I think. If you do the math, <laughs> if you do the math on 14ers.com, the starting elevation and ending elevation is 2.9. 
but it says 3,000 feet. I think, I think Bill gave it the bump. Yeah, right. He gave it a 10-foot bump. That's funny. <laughs> well, get there early. Parking's limited. You start by crossing that creek on Stevens Gulch, which yeah. is right in the evergreen trees and in that basin. It's a really well-groomed trail, too, from what I remember. It's class one the entire time. It's it's almost like they have little uh, like gravel path with nice little steps up. and I mean, it's a really well-maintained um, kudos to whoever's done that work. CFI, CFI. Colorado 14ers initiative. Yeah. And in fact, uh, which is a, what nonprofit, go ahead and tell us about CFI. Yeah. The Colorado 14ers initiative is a nonprofit group that does basically builds trails on the 14ers. I put a group together every year of volunteers and we go work for a weekend and we're actually going to be on Gray's and Tories this summer. Oh, great. Um, so we're going to be out there a weekend in July. How do you volunteer? Yeah. So, um, you can go to their website, uh, 14ers.org or look up the Colorado 14ers initiative. They have projects looking for volunteers. You can volunteer for a weekend or half a week. Some of them are really close to the front range. Some of them are more remote. Um, and they also have a bunch of fundraisers throughout the year. That's great. And you won the adopt a peak award in 2016. Uh, yeah. For your work on Wetterhorn? Uh, yeah. So, well, actually it was on the first year we did beer stat. And then the next year we did Quandary, and then the last two years we've done Albert. Um, but basically, I called CFI and said I wanted to volunteer, and I, I had an idea of putting together a 14ers.com group, a bunch of people from the forum. So I said, how many people you know can we bring? And they were like, well, you need a minimum of eight people. And I was like, well, what's the maximum we can bring? And they're like, 30. <laughs> so I just uh, put up a you know, a thread on the forum and said, who wants to come volunteer? And we had 30 people show up. That's great. Yeah. Um, so it was really awesome. It's a lot of work swinging a sledgehammer at 12, 13,000 feet. <laughs> sure. And then were you just building trail? Is that? Yeah. So the first year when we were on Beerstat, you know, you're going up Beerstat and there's all those log kind of kick steps that you walk over. We put 50 of those in. Huh. Um, and then the next year on Quandary, we worked on a bunch of rock walls kind of right above the tree line. Um, and then on Albert, we were working on, on the east side, it was the new trail that hadn't been opened yet. And so there was a lot of fun stuff to do, clearing trees, carrying stuff up, building rock walls, hauling hay bales, um, getting that trail ready to go. So it's, it's really a cool experience. Really cool. Yeah. So who do you have to go through to get approval to do something like that? Like what's to keep uh, a group of people that aren't authorized to do that to make changes to the trail or i mean like how, what's the proper channel to go through do they yeah so there's a couple of different groups that do trail work cfi is the one i've worked with but they they're in communication with the forest service cool and they get all their you know gotcha. plans Directives, and everything sure yeah um, Who did the route on uh, North Maroon? Is that CFI? It was CFI. That, those stone steps, like up that steep section, yeah. when you're gaining out, out of tree line, that's, that's one of the best trails I think I've ever yeah. seen done in a rocky area. Oh, they do great work. What did you do on Wetterhorn? Uh, so, so we didn't actually do Wetterhorn. Um, oh. When I got the award, they asked. Well, they I didn't know I was getting the award. They someone asked me what's my favorite 14er, and I said Wetterhorn. <laughs> and so they gave me a. Um, I forget the artist's name. I should know that. But um, it was basically a painting of Wetterhorn, and it said, you know, congratulations. Oh, uh, really, cool. So, really cool. So, yeah, I haven't done – I haven't worked on Wetterhorn, but it is my favorite peak. Favorite 14. What, what part of the mountain will you work on in Grays? Probably 
Uh, I was told that there's a lot of social trails kind of right near the split off. And so we'll try to be closing down. Uh, and there's a bunch of mountain. I'm speculating here, but there's a bunch of mountain goats running around up there too. And they tend to kind of make their own trails and then people confuse that for trails. So we're going to try to like reinforce the main trail and try to close a lot of the other. I do remember that. that are opening. From kind Grace. of spiderweb, you can see yes. it from a distance. Yeah, yeah, it spiderwebs out, and I did an '09, so that was ten years ago. Ten years ago. <laughs> would would oh. this be a good time to like kind of uh, broach the topic of trail ethics, trail etiquette? Sure. I think yeah. that's. I think Grace is one mountain, at least in my mind, and it's in the handful of times I've done it, it gets a little worse every time. The as you call them, the social trails, and, and you know, I never heard that term. Yeah, I haven't either, but I like that. But sometimes the trails are hard to find, but I, I feel like every time gets just a little bit a little bit worse. And so will you camp at the trailhead, or will you camp up for a couple days, or just day trip it? For the CFI weekend? Yeah. Yeah, we usually set up camp somewhere in the vicinity, maybe a quarter mile away or something, and then just drive up and work. But Yeah, I think what happens, like when we were working on Beerstat, we counted 500 people on a saturday like every time someone walks by you gotta you stop working and you let you know people walk and then Mm -hmm. you get back to work and we counted like 500 people wow on a saturday you know and so you start thinking about i mean that you know that's a short trail it's only what three miles or so to the summit you got 500 people (laughs) on there like you know, and so I, what happens is I, I think on those kind of routes, especially through the tundra, it's really it's important for people to stay on trail. But the trails actually get so crowded that people start walking off trail, just trying to get around other people, all the people on the trails. And so it's kind of an issue of, I don't know, it's just so crowded and the peaks are, you know, the front, front rain peaks are just kind of getting loved to death, getting trashed. Good way to put it. And... You know, so I most of what I've seen is not really anybody trying to do anything wrong, but just, you know, trying to get out of traffic, trying to walk on the tundra, you know, that kind of thing. And then that causes, I don't know, the trails, the road and. Well, and we've seen it's not necessarily anybody being malicious, but carrying up a 14 or sign that shows the name of the peak and then the elevation of the peak. But then because they want to be sweet, they decide to leave it at the peak for other people to take a picture with. Uh, Again, that's not a malicious thing, but it's something that, I mean, you are leaving trash on a really fragile part of the mountain. And that can easily blow off or get rained on. People don't see it. Um, So take your signs with you. If you're going to bring a sign up that shows what peak you're on and what elevation, please just bring that down with you. I know it's, it's often, or if you see one up there that someone's left... Go ahead and grab that and take that down. Backpack full of them down. (laughs) Yeah, because and I and like I said, it's not because people are trying to be malicious. It truly is just that they're trying to be thoughtful. But it's it's trash on a mountain. So we got slightly off topic because I was taking us up standing around on on uh, (laughs) which is awesome. We're playing our we're playing our uh, off route jingle here. This discussion, Mr. Karen, we're way off trail. We're on the wrong path. The talk is starting to derail. The convo is now. We're totally off route. So let's get it back to the mountain that this podcast is all about. 
taking us up the standard on north uh, on the north slopes of Grays. But it's really gentle, gentle slopes. You know, it's a seven and a half mile round trip, three thousand feet elevation gain, class one trail all the way to the summit. There's like that sign that I remember about halfway through, where you see the trailhead sign or whatever, and then you can see Grays and Torres to the left and right. Um, what would you tell people? How would you describe that route? A lot of switchbacks, from what I remember. It's kind of zigzags up the little talus field. It's really gradual. Once you cross over the bridge, you get up into that basin. Until first mile or two is pretty easy, right? first mile or two is incredibly easy, which is why it's such a great first 14er, because I think it really, you know, is gradual approach. And then, like you said, once you see Grays and Tories and you have that first view and it splits off one way towards the Tories kelso Ridge and the other way towards Grays, you know, hang left if you want to go to Grays. And then that's where at Jace or Jack was talking about starts that kind of switch, switch back section. That's kind of chalky and a little loose because of all the people. What's the etiquette on who, who yields to whom? Because you pass a lot of people. You're going to pass 500 people on a Saturday on Grays. You always yield to uphill hikers. So if you're coming down, uphill has the right of way. That is true. I always try to look at, sometimes it's harder going up in a section, sometimes it's harder coming down. Mm-hmm. So I always try to like look at who has the more challenging part in yield. Sure. You know, most of the time what you're saying is correct. Yeah. But sometimes there are some instances where I'm like, I'm just going to go ahead and yield. Even though I have the right of way, I'm going to yield to this person because yeah. they're in a harder position. And I'm in a good spot to stop. Or a big group might be another example. You know, I'll just let a whole group go past instead of making them all stop. And that's another advantage of going earlier because you'll actually see less people when you go early. And you'll see better climbers when you go early. Mm-hmm. So the later you're up there, the more kind of people who don't know what they're doing and don't know the etiquette. So I want to talk about that, doing it at a time, not a Saturday in August. I want to talk about when you did uh, snow climb of Grays in May. What was that like? Pretty Take awesome. us up the snow climb. You did it in May 2015. Well, we skied ski, it. Ski of so we Grays. Skied it. Um, we had the park at I-70, <laughs> like park That's on the track. highway. And so it has three miles at least, right? About three miles? Each yeah. way. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then skin all the way up the road. Anytime in the winter you want to give uh, kind of a wide pass to Kelso Mountain because there have been avalanches, there's been some fatalities there. So Kelso runs on your right. Yeah. And so the standard summer trail, if you follow it in the winter, is a little too close to Kelso, so you want to go a little more out in the basin. But in the spring, yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful ski. We had good coverage. It was just a real nice mellow ski all the way up, and then we got on the ridge, and... Uh, probably the last thousand feet and took it up to the summit and just skied right down the standard trail. We didn't do Lost Rat, the, the couloir on the no, very left. No, okay. Yeah, Lost Rat is one of the couloirs that you can go up. There's another route off of Loveland Pass Yeah. that I've not done. It's a big day, but a lot of people, uh, that's kind of a popular winter route because it avoids avalanches, but you start high and you stay high all day. Um, so you're just kind of going up and down over peaks, really above 13,000 feet. I also know you can approach that from Peru Creek to sort of the Argentine Pass area. Like if you're at the Keystone Ski Resort and you drive up like you're going toward Montezuma, I don't think this is in any of the 
I don't think it's on 14ers.com, but I do know uh, Fritz Sperry describes it in, in his... Um, like West Slope? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Making Turns on Colorado's Front Range book. It's more of a backcountry ski route, but uh, you can access that from a basin, but you can also get up there from kind of the uh, Chihuahua Gulch to Argentine Pass, like that whole Peru Creek area has a really cool approach to graze as well. Really pretty, really uh, peaceful and quiet back in there. We've done some hiking on Argentine Pass. I haven't approached graze that way, but you can hmm. pretty much hit the top with the rock from Argentine Pass. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. If that road's open. Yeah. Um, when, when that road's open. Yeah. That A lot of that slid really big this year, so it may not open until late. I know the maiden slid really big, and hmm. so... Who's Gray's named after? A botanist climbed Gray's, right? Fifty Shades. No. <laughs> There's a botanist I felt like that climbed Gray's, and he named it after like a colleague or something, right? Uh, other way around. It's a uh, guy who first climbed it was uh, I think his name was Perry, but he named it after the botanist Asa Gray, who climbed it like twelve years later. Yeah. Botanist. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Tories and Gray's are both named for botanists. Gray was like a uh, contemporary of Darwin. So he exchanged 300 or so letters with Darwin, actually helped uh, get the uh, origin of species published or, or uh, royalty rights in America for, for Darwin. Really? Uh, hmm? Huh. Where do you guys like to go eat after climbing grace? Ooh. Because you're not really in a town. It's not like... No, but you're hungry when you finish. I mean, you got so. Idaho Springs. Yeah. That is the one thing that, you know, of all the 14ers, I love all the stuff around the 14ers. Like when you climb down and it's, you're in Lake City and there's so many cute little places to go. And But yeah, Grays and Tories is a little bit out so, there. But So you finish, I, you want a cold beer and some food, you're not driving all the way back to Denver. Where do you no, go? No. I feel like I have to plug Bojo's. That's what I had after Grays. I would go to Tommy Knockers. If I was going, great. Tommy Knockers is great. Westbound and Down. Yeah, I was gonna say, has anybody been there? Westbound and Down, you a beer guy? I, I didn't yeah. like it very much. It's like not quaint. It's a little it's contemporary. Not quaint. It's like kind of IKEA decor. Yeah, it's very contemporary. <laughs> but they have good beer. There's I think also- I'd go the other way. I'd just go out of my way and go drop into Silverton, Silverthorn, and you go to Dam Brewery or uh, Frisco and go to uh, Outer Range Brewing. Oh. Or Chiba Hut. Ooh. Oh. Chiba Hut. Little White Widow. Don't mind if I do. So good. Well, Let's talk about parking etiquette, because this is one that I've seen really oh. It always seems that people turn the fragile alpine tundra into a parking lot, which is great if you're in the middle of a cornfield, but don't do it on 14 or trailheads, um, because you drive your car over that once, and that grass will take years and years and years to come back. And I know this... Might sound a little trivial and a little tree hugger, but like if if you do it, everybody else is gonna do it, and you know everybody thinks they're the only one doing it, and then then they're not. So. So if the parking lot's full, do you just hang one tire off the side of the road, or? Just that? double park. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> no, I feel like there's solutions. Find something that's dirt. Park on the dirt. So. Yeah. I think you should. One I see is anytime you're at. Definitely a 14er, but almost any Colorado trailhead. You should assume that that trailhead, that parking lot's going to fill up. And so park in a way that you can get as many cars in there. Great because, one. like, some people show up in the middle of the week and they might do an overnight trip and they just kind of park. And then when 20 more cars fill in, that car is taking up three spots. So, yeah. really be thinking about, like, what's the most efficient way to park, even if you're only a, a handful idea. of cars in there. Yeah. 
It'll save yeah, you from getting nasty notes on your windshield. Mm. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> what are uh, three words you would use to describe grays? I, I'm always impressed how beautiful mm. it is coming through there. Like, I, I just think that valley is really pretty. We can't um, quite see grays from the trailhead. No. Kind of got to get like a mile up or two, and then you really like, oh. Right. And then you can kind of see both peaks, and you mm. kind of see where you're going. I, um, a lot of mountain goats, I think. <laughs> Seems like I've seen mountain goats every time I've been up there. And then gapers. Love. <laughs> I, I think my words would be gentle because it's just it's a it's a gentle approach. I would also say approachable because it's so close to Denver that it's yeah an easy one to get to you, an easy one to tackle. And unfortunately, I would say crowded. That was gonna be mine. Nah, yeah. I was gonna say crowded too. I, I I do think it's just crowded. If you get an opportunity to do it during the week, do it because the weekends are gonna be crowded. And if you do go on a weekend, just expect that. Or in the winter. Or in the winter. I would say since you said crowded, that's the first thing that came to mind for me. I would say people or populated. Thesaurus. Where dinosaurs at? Um, I would say populated. I would say it's a classic. I mean, it's a. It's not iconic, <laughs> but it's 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 classic. Like in Summit County, driving you know eastbound past Lake Dillon, you can see Grays and Tories, and oh, that's, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a classic. Um, and it's a a starter. It's a good like starter fourteener. I make mine three word phrase, and I'll just say opportunity to teach. I feel like every time I've been on there, I've either like shared some Advil with people, or shared some food, or shared my trekking poles, or helped someone who was feeling headachey. And so you're gonna run into a lot of people who are inexperienced, and so I think it's a great one to teach them about the essentials, and teach them about etiquette, and teach them and be positive. I think actually just being positive is someone who's trying to struggle up the mountain and going very slowly to give them some just some words of encouragement, or it's kind of fun. That's really neat. I like that. Thanks for coming our way, Mongoose, and joining yeah. join the podcast. I really enjoyed it. It's really exciting to be a part of it. Yeah, thanks for being here. Hope to have you back. Talk about Wetterhorn and the one you didn't do trail maintenance on. <laughs> <laughs> but you did adopt it nonetheless. And yeah. Anytime you want to offer dinner, I'll be over. <laughs> yeah, great steak, by the way. Yeah. All right, Jason, you want to give us a little... Disclaimer, you got a disclaimer? Yeah, as always, guys, just remember to uh, take what we say with a grain of salt. These are our opinions. Um, so make your own decisions in the mountains. Don't hold us responsible for any stupid decisions you make. Don't be stupid and uh, bring the 10 essentials and have fun. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Adios.